Do you want to be a good citizen and a good neighbor? Do you want to be good at knowing when to speak and when to be silent? Probably most of you, are, I'm assuming, would say, yeah, I want to be good at life. Now let me ask you a more difficult question. And you're going to see how this fits in with God's word this morning. Are you good at those things? Are you good at life? I imagine that some of you would say, well, I'm not perfect, but yeah, pretty much. A few of you would confess no, like evidence would uh, demand no. And, but many of you, I think most of you, would pause to ponder over that difficult question, am I good at life? As we'll see this morning from the book of James, the biblical word for this concept of being good at life, there's a biblical word, that word is wisdom. The question that James posed to his readers 2,000 years ago, in James 3.13, is who is wise and understanding among you? And this morning we're going to ask ourselves, do I have wisdom? Am I good at life? Now, the book of James is, is likely the first book written in the New Testament. James was Jesus' half-brother, the son of Joseph and Mary. Now, James didn't believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah until after Jesus had resurrected from the dead. Now, after believing, James, over the few years afterwards, became an important leader in the early church. This book of James, it's a letter that he wrote. It circulated among recently planted Jewish churches. They were scattered in Gentile cities around the Roman Empire. Those cities were most likely in modern-day countries of Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. So written to Jews, and this is largely before Gentiles start getting saved as well. The churches were mostly Jewish. And these early churches were comprised of Jews who had accepted Jesus not only as the long-awaited Messiah, but as God the Son become man, the Son of David who suffered in the place of sinners, so that sinners could be forgiven, could be reconciled with God, could be made right with God, and could live lives pleasing to God. And these newly converted Jews were waiting for Jesus, their king, to return and reign on earth. It was good news. The gospel is good news. Because of that good news, because of their acceptance of Christ as king, these early Christians were suffering from the hands, most likely, of other Jews who had rejected and continued to, to, to reject Jesus as the Messiah. Now, as Jews, as most of, of James's audience was, they, they, they hadn't grown up in the same pagan environment that the, that the Gentiles did. They had grown up hearing God's word. They knew the commandments of the Old Testament. They knew right and wrong. They'd grown up reading Proverbs. But as the book of James shows... Many of them were not living in a way that was consistent with their new confession of faith in Christ. They had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, 
but they were not living under his lordship. And uh, uh, for those of you who, who are with us this, this, this past fall as we went through James, uh, you remember that an ongoing theme is James examining them, questioning them, kind of encouraging them, are you really right with the Lord? And we see this, for example, in James 1.22, where he calls them to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James was concerned that they were deceiving themselves. Or James 1 verse 26, he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. He was concerned that although these, these, these uh, mostly Jewish churches were, were blossoming around that, 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 that ancient world, um, there was evidence that they didn't really know the word, that their religion was worthless, that, that they were deceiving themselves. James 2.14 continues this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? You guys are missing out. You say that you believe in Jesus, but you don't have the works that are, 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 are confirming that you have been changed by God. James 2.26 is another one. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And James was concerned, you've got faith but not works, so is that living faith or is that dead faith? In the paragraph preceding ours this morning, James 3 verses 9 through 12, he points their attention to their speech. He gives them a test of their speech. He says, concerning their tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father... And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. But that's exactly what you're trying to do. From your same mouth, you're, you're saying you believe in the Lord, but then you're cursing one another. This, is not, this does not look like saving faith. So many members of these early Jewish churches were, were not as spiritually healthy as they thought they were. So James does what's merciful. He mercifully takes them through an examination of whether their faith had been accompanied by obedience. And that really is a merciful thing to do. It's great to say that you believe in Jesus, but is your belief in Jesus being accompanied by obedience? Well, if it's not, you don't really have faith in Jesus yet. So James is going to continue this, this examination in James 3, verses 13 to 18. I'm going to read that now. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This morning, we're going to examine how James describes wisdom so that you can evaluate your spiritual health. And this is the ongoing work that James has been doing since the end of the first chapter. He wants you to examine your spiritual health. 
Now that doesn't have to be a bad thing. You can go to the doctor to check out your physical bodies and have a great checkup. And by God's grace, that'll be some of your experience this morning. You're gonna be here this morning and you're going to be encouraged. You're gonna be able to rejoice because of what your new life in Christ is producing in you. You're gonna be able to look at this description of wisdom and say, I see wisdom growing in me. You, you, you'll be able to say, yeah, I'm, I'm humbled by it, but I am wise in understanding. And that's something we can rejoice in. And that's God's grace working in your life. God's grace can also work in your life, though, if some of you this morning repent. Now, you know that you have put your faith in Christ. You know that you believe. You know you love Christ. But you look at your life and how wisdom is described this morning, and you're like, wow, I, I, I see areas I really need, need to grow. And that's God's grace working in your life, too. Some of you, though, may be here this morning, and you look and you say, no, wisdom is absent. I do not have that wisdom. In fact, I've got this, this earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. Well, then by God's grace, you're here this morning and you can repent and you can put your faith in Jesus Christ and you can be changed. And that change can begin this morning. So God is gracious in bringing you here this morning to hear what he says to us and to bring us into a test that, that I think is going to be exposing to all of us, encouraging to many of us, but exposing to all of us. So before we start evaluating whether we have wisdom, we have to understand what wisdom is. And we're going to start that by looking at what the nature of wisdom is. And we're going to see that in the beginning of verse 13. And really, I'm going to use verse 13 to fill in, in some background of wisdom. Because for us who didn't grow up as, as Jewish boys and girls 2,000 years ago, wisdom is going to be a, a, a little bit different of a concept. And we've used that, 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 that word in different ways. So we're going to try to look at the nature of wisdom here and try to get up to speed for what James' audience would have assumed. So when he starts off in verse 13, James 3, and says, Who is wise and understanding among you? I wonder how many people today would say, That's me. I'm wise and understanding. I don't, I don't know that any of us would, right? It's not culturally appropriate to describe yourself as wise and understanding. It would look proud. Particularly when it comes, now you, you might say, oh, I've got wisdom in my work field. And you might feel a little bit more, more comfortable with that. But when it comes to, to moral issues, to, to loving God and, and loving others, we'd be slow to raise our hand. And yet in, in today's world, those who are slow to describe themselves as wise and understanding often take it upon themselves to teach others. People are quick to give advice on how to, to raise and educate children, whom and how to date and how to have a happy marriage, how to navigate responsibilities to aging parents, how to spend your time and money, how to treat your employees or how to respond to, to your employer. Which laws of the government are worth following? How and when it's appropriate to share your spiritual opinion or share your political opinions? Everyone is spouting out wisdom all the time. Yet they won't say they're wise in understanding. At least they think it's wisdom. Many on social media who would never say, and not that there's anything wrong with social media, but who would never say, I'm wise and understanding, listen to me, but they post in a way that reveals that that's how they view themselves. 
right? Bloggers, athletes, professors, businessmen, CEOs, pop icons, political pundits, they all tell you how to live. They all tell you how to show, how to shop. They all tell you how to vote. They're really, without saying it, they're all saying, I'm wise, listen to me. The word wise in Greek has at its most basic idea, the idea of skill. Wisdom is living life with skill. One Greek dictionary describes wisdom as experienced and competent, mastery of life and its various problems. As your ship goes through life seas, you're good at navigating the rocks. You're good at life. In this context, understanding is is similar. It's not just possessing knowledge, but it's uh, effectually using that knowledge. It's being an expert. It's it's what that word understanding means. You're you're skilled. You're an expert. And this is what we talked about. You're good at life. The person who's wise and understanding is good at life. They are skilled at life. Now, being wise and understanding at life doesn't mean that your life is perfect. It doesn't mean that you have a picturesque life, a storybook life. That is not what wise and understanding means. It doesn't change the fact. A a biblical worldview understands that wise and understanding means able to apply God's commands to the situations of life in a sin-cursed world, right? Our lives are not perfect. We, 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 we have sicknesses, we have financial problems, we have marriage problems, but we can be wise and understanding even if our lives aren't perfect. Being wise and understanding always applies to um, or, or, or it deals with applying God's commands to the situations of life. That's what wise and understanding is, applying God's commands to the situations of life. These words, wise and understanding, So the Greek world translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. These words that James uses, wise and understanding, are used only a couple times together in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. One of those three times is in Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6. And you're going to see here the, the connection between God's commands and being wise and understanding. Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6, this is Moses Moses preaching to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. See, I have taught you statues and rules, Moses says, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to to take possession of it. So I'm giving you God's commands. So then he says in verse 6, Deuteronomy 4, Moses says, keep them and do them. Obey God's commands, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statues, all of God's commands, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Wisdom and understanding is applying God's commands to the everyday situations of life. It's to take the right interpretation of God's word and apply them to the choices that life that life presents, choices of how we speak and of how we parent and of how we spend and how we work and our relationships and our conflicts and our giving and our serving and our leading. All of that requires wisdom and understanding, applying the right interpretation of God's word to the choices that we face. You can see why wisdom and understanding will not be found 
just listening to every random voice on the internet or radio. God's word tells us that wisdom begins with a fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom begins with the realization that God is who he says he is. Wisdom, the starting point, is that God is a good and holy creator. And as we understand how good and holy he is, we are humbled before him, that we are sinful creatures deserving judgment. And that's where fear begins. But fear doesn't end there. The fearing the Lord is seeing that he's good and holy, that we are sinful creatures deserving judgment. But, and that the only way to come to God and his holiness is by admitting our foolishness and by being reconciled to him through the believing in his son. That is what fearing God is. Fearing God is coming to God in faith. It is not running from God in dread. If you are running away from God because of how holy he is, that's not the fear that he wants. He wants you to run to him because he is gracious and compassionate, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he welcomes you to come through his son, Jesus Christ. That is what fearing the Lord is, and that is where wisdom begins. Wisdom begins with fearing the Lord, coming to God, to him, his way. Now, before we are saved, our lives are, are, are scarred by foolishness of independent living. Our lives are scarred by the foolishness of independent living. We suffer from separation from God because of our sins. We suffer the shame of our sinful choices. We suffer from slavery to sin and self and Satan and the world. We are every one of us fools who need wisdom. Right? Apart from God's grace to us in Christ Jesus, we are fools. We do things consistently wrong. But God is gracious. God chooses to save foolish people. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 28 to 31. It says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, and in that context, the foolish, to bring to nothing the things that are ours so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God delights in saving foolish people. And here in verse 30, and because of him, because God delights in saving foolish people, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. And then he describes that wisdom from God further as righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus Christ being our wisdom is the answer to all of our slavery to sin. And then it says in verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We've got nothing to boast. We don't have any wisdom in ourselves. In ourselves, we are foolish. We consistently choose the wrong way. But God is gracious and he gives us the wisdom from God Jesus Christ. So Christ came to make us wise, to bring us into a right relationship with himself, to sanctify us and make us holy, to rescue us from slavery to sin. Now, this is all the background here of the nature of wisdom. After receiving Christ as our wisdom, living wisely, living God's way, involves listening to instruction, right? Wisdom is listening to instruction. And James' Jewish audience knew that it would be listening to God's word. Wisdom is being someone who listens and who does. Proverbs continually describes fools as those who reject instruction, who are stubborn and will not be taught, who will not submit to God's laws, who will not choose God's ways. 
Now, when James comes to this uh, question of who is wise and understanding among you, he expects many in his audience to answer with an affirmative me. And if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are a maturing Christian, you should be able to say, yes, I'm growing in wisdom. Now, you might be a a little slow to say, I'm wise and understanding. But really, we're going to see, as we look at it, you you can say that. But at the very least, if you are maturing, you you can say, yeah, I'm growing in wisdom and the wise application of God's law. Christ came to make us wise and understanding. That's why Jesus came, to make us good at life. Wisdom is not some far-off goal. It's not only attainable to those who go on some some spiritual quest to go up the side of a mountain and drink a cup of tea peacefully while flags blow in the distance. Christ came to make us wise so that we can have new hearts that love God, that trust his commands, that choose willingly to submit to his commands. That is why Christ came, to give us wisdom and understanding. He came to make us people who live life well, and I don't mean in some kind of like your best life now kind of way in a fancy car and gold teeth. I mean, I don't know if that's the best life now anyways, but uh, whatever bling that the world has, right? I don't have that there. (laughs) He came to have us live life well according to the wisdom of his word. See, there were many in James' audience, and maybe here today, who thought of themselves as more spiritually healthy than they were. They thought, oh, I'm one who hears God's word, but they didn't do it. They affirmed the goodness of God's law, but they failed to love their neighbors. They had faith in God's son, but they didn't have works that corroborated their claim. James expected his hearers to evaluate themselves as wise and understanding. Maybe some of you here today know that you're not. You know, the consequences of, in your life have been obvious. You spurned wisdom, and you've suffered the effects of living a foolish life. You know, when you look in the mirror, you're like, I've not been good at life. There is hope for you in Jesus Christ. Christ came to make us wise and understanding. You can be different. You can make wise choices. For others, being good at life is just kind of an assumed part of their identity. It's the makeup they put on every day. It's who they see in the mirror. I'm good at life. I feel really good about my choices. That's not necessarily wise and understanding either, though. What about you? How do you see yourself? Are you good at life? Are you wise and understanding? Well, James wants them to ask this question of themselves. He begins with that, who is wise and understanding among you? And then he continues. So he talks about the nature of wisdom, at least I did. And now we're going to look at the evidence of wisdom. We're going to see the evidence of wisdom as verse 13 continues. He gives evidence here, proof. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If you consider yourself wise and understanding, then by your good conduct, show your works in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom is visible. Wisdom can be seen. Wisdom isn't just 
in the head. It's not just a, 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 uh, a pattern of answering people's tough the- theological questions so you look really wise. You can know if you have wisdom. James says it's by his good conduct, let him show works in the meekness of wisdom. And that word show is the same word that James used in James 2.18, how someone can show their faith by their works. You can prove your faith by your works and you can show wisdom by works coming out of your good conduct. Good conduct is morally excellent living. It's behavior. That, it just looks good. It's obviously good. It's noble. It's praiseworthy. Now, we know that good conduct is the ultimate standard is God's word, right? But often, this good conduct is, is, is appreciated by anyone. You know, your, your coworkers can see that good conduct. They may not like what you say about that, but overall, you know, they see your, your good conduct, your classmates can recognize that's, that's, that, that's a good life there. That's what good conduct is. It's a way of life that's beautiful. It's even maybe desirable, even to those who don't love the Lord, because of its goodness. It's, it's a generous life, a sacrificial life, gentle, a just life, other-centered, faithful, committed. That's good conduct. It's noble. It's praiseworthy. People look at it and say, well, I want to be like that. The overflow of this good conduct is works. Now, that's not works that save yourself, it's actions. Now, James was particularly concerned that their good conduct should overflow in acts of compassion. And he's talked about that in James. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Wisdom acts. This good conduct has works like caring for orphans and widows, or James 2, verses 14 and 16. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? Then he's going to talk about these works in verse 15 in James 2. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? These are the kinds of works that James is talking about. These are the works that overflow from that good conduct that give evidence of wisdom. These actions, these good works, are also deeds prompted by by faith. We see that at the end of James 2. Like Abraham's willingness to obey God even when God called him to offer his son. Or or Rahab's willingness to hide the Jewish spies and put her life online to save them. The works, uh, or this good conduct here, the works of good conduct is obeying God's law. It's loving him with all your heart, soul, and mind, and it's loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what these works coming from a good conduct are. Well, what is this, that where, where does this, this good conduct with these works come from? It's rooted in the meekness of wisdom. James 3.13, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness is, and one dictionary describes it as, the quality of not being overly impressed by one's self-importance. Not being overly impressed by one's self-importance. Meekness is inwardly humble and outwardly gentle and courteous. Meekness is not demanding what you deserve, what you think you deserve. Instead, meekness is seeking to serve. The origin of meekness is wisdom. 
The origin, it says meekness of wisdom. It's, 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 the wisdom is the source of this meekness. And the one who to, listens to God's word has this meekness. They have meekness because they have a high view of God. They see God in his word as they listen to his word. They see him in all of his splendor and his holiness. And then they see their sin inside themselves as they listen to what God commands and they're humbled before God. And so with that low view of self, they're not gonna demand their rights. They're not gonna say, but I deserve this because they realize what they deserve is judgment. Meekness is not exalting yourself over others. Uh, It's not being too busy or too full of yourself to have compassion on others. In his humanity, Jesus Sinless was both wise and meek. In fact, the Bible talks about him growing in wisdom in his humanity. Matthew eleven twenty nine though, it says that Jesus is gentle or meek and lowly in heart. Meekness is demonstrated by Jesus welcoming the little children unto himself. Meekness is Jesus coming not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The evidence of wisdom is this humble, honorable, generous, outward-looking life, a humble, honorable, generous, outward-looking life that listens to God's word and serves other. That is the evidence of wisdom. So if you're able to say, who is wise and understanding among you? Does that describe you? By God's grace, and James wants some of them to be able to say, yes, that does. God's grace is working in my life. Good works are coming out of a good conduct, born out of meekness of wisdom. But there's also, James knew many of them, and he knew this because he had heard about the the conflicts that were going on in these churches. If you read it further in James 4, you'll, you'll, you'll read, he even describes kind of the murder that was happening. It probably wasn't actual murder, but they were so at one another's throats. He can describe them as murdering one of those, fighting and quarreling. So he knew there was wisdom lacking. Wisdom should be seen in good conduct. But James heard of this conflict in these churches. Let's look at the absence of wisdom in verses 14 and 16. James says in the beginning of verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. See, this is a completely different way from, the, uh, from meekness. This is self-centeredness. You, you can imagine these, these hearts that James describes here. Uh, you, you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. You can imagine these hearts kind of like one of those dark, scary, foreboding caves and you go up to the front of it and you look back and you can't see the back, but there's a smell coming out of it. And James is smelling coming, something coming out of their hearts. And the first monster that comes slithering out is bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. The word jealousy has to do with an intense interest in something. And it's not a bad word in itself. Often it can be translated zeal. Like the disciples would later remember after Jesus cleared the temple uh, because of of all the profiteering that was going on there. That they remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had zeal. He had an intense interest in his father's house. That's that word used in a positive way, zeal. But that intense interest can also be selfishly spent on yourself. It can be jealousy over someone else's accomplishments. Your intense interest is looking on what you deserve, but what they got. 
like in Acts 5, verses 17 and 18. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. They, they were filled with jealousy because the apostles were, were, were gaining listeners to the gospel. Now, James describes this jealousy as bitter jealousy. It was harsh. And, and, and it's to let us know that this zeal is not the good kind of zeal. This is, this is selfish zeal. It's corrupt in its entitlement. It's demanding what others have. It wants others' power, others' privilege, others' praise. Give me more, says this zeal. So that's one of these, these monsters that come out of this, this heart, which is this dark cave, and another slithers alongside it, selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is pursuing your will, doing what is good for you. It's having me at the end of your goals. It's a resentfulness at the success of others. It leads to rivalry and conflict, to hostility and strife. You know, you feel yourself in a tuggle, a, 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 a struggle with someone else wanting, tugging what they have. It's trying to make yourself seem as big as you think of yourself in order to get what you think you deserve. Now, sometimes I've seen men do this. It's a little bit different. They put on a t-shirt that's too small to make their muscles look really just massive, right? They want to think of themselves as really buff. They're not really. Their shirt is just too small. That is this, this selfish ambition, like, oh, look at me. I deserve more. Something like that. Um, at its simplest, if you've been a child, if you have children, you've seen this kind of activity. It's really obvious. When a sibling gets a privilege that another sibling doesn't, what does that other sibling start doing? What does that brother or sister start doing when, when their brother or sister gets something that they didn't? You see the greed, the entitlement. Why did they get that? Why do they deserve that? Then starts the, the, the whole skill set of trying to get what they got, the pouting or the, or the manipulating, the complaining, until finally they get what they deserve. Now, it's pretty ugly when kids do it. It's pretty ugly when adults do it. The results are bad, and we're going to get to those in a minute. Do you act like a spoiled child? When you're passed over at school, maybe for a sports team or in school band, do you act like a spoiled child when you're passed over at work? Or maybe in the church someone gets something that you wanted, a privilege? James says at the end of verse 14, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. He gives two commands here to those whose hearts are slithering with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Do not boast. Stop making yourself out to be spiritually mature because you're not. Stop looking in the mirror thinking, I deserve to be treated better. Stop boasting. Look at me, I'm so wise, I'm good at life. Stop, he says, being false to the truth. Stop lying about wisdom. You're not wise in understanding. What you're talking about is not wisdom. You may have lots of doctrine. You may be an excellent teacher. You may be disciplined in your life. You may be great with finances, great with health. You may have made all kinds of sacrifices. But if your eyes are turned outward, craving 
the success that others have. And if your eyes are turned inward, and normally we do that at the same time, both outward and inward, inward, fixated on what you deserve but you haven't received, James says you're overinflated and self-deceived. You're pretending to be something you're not. He says, stop it. Stop lying. If that describes you, the truth that you're lying against is the nature of wisdom. So James is going to make really clear here, that's not wisdom you think you've got. In verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. You might claim to have wisdom, but that's not wisdom. Something else entirely, that doesn't come from God. It is earthly. It's the kind of of wisdom of doing life that's really at home on earth, but it is not welcome in heaven. It's unspiritual. It's the, kind of, it's the kind of wisdom that would be appropriate if we were soulless animals, right? If, 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 if we were just, you know, one vulture along with lots of other vultures trying to eat some carcass, and you're like, oh, I want more of that dead animal. That's that kind of unspiritual wisdom here. I just need a bigger slice of the pie because I'm wearing too small of a T-shirt. It's natural for those who need to get theirs now because they don't believe in eternity. They're living for this life only. It's it's the kind of living that is to those who don't have God's spirit. James goes even further. It's demonic. That kind of wisdom is is birthed in anti-God endeavors of self-exaltation. That's exactly what Satan was all about, right? Dethroning God, being king of the universe, us being kings of our kingdoms. That is not wisdom. It seems perfectly normal, seems excusable, seems maybe even right or justified. But this earthly, natural, demonic, so-called wisdom is exposed by its fruit. And that's what James gets to in 3 verse 16. And this is continuing the absence of, uh, of wisdom here. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Jealousy and selfish ambition will work together to plot and to poison. They manipulate and, and try to subvert. They play games with people. They spread lies. They twist and deceive. Every conversation is another opportunity to knock someone down a notch or to make themselves go up a little bit. And the whole time, they think that they're wise. They may have even convinced themselves that they're doing what is best, that their motives are good. They're just doing what's best for their family. They're watching out for the church. But the result is clear. It's disorder. It's an unsettled state. It's, it's, it's storms and confusion. E- even anarchy is a result of this fake wisdom. And vile practice, he says. People stoop to shameful behavior to get what they want. They act in, in base and worthless and morally substandard ways, far beneath the wisdom that they claim. They gossip and backbite and they're factious and lie and slander. This kind of chaos and confusion is not the product of God's wisdom. If you stop boasting, if if you stop lying, is that actually your kind of wisdom? 
That's not wisdom. Or is your kind of wisdom the wisdom described in verse 17? And this wisdom from above, it is beautiful. We're going to see it in James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and, and sincere. It's, re- it's really interesting. James first says it's first pure. That idea pure. Wisdom is, is morally innocent. Wisdom desires what's appropriate to God's presence. It chooses conformity to God's commands so that it can enjoy being blameless in God's presence. We know we're only made blameless by Christ's sacrifice, but living out in that blameless way. Wisdom doesn't compromise with sin. It's first pure. Wisdom's first concern is is what is pure? What does God's word say? What is appropriate to God's presence? Because wisdom is pure, it it, it wants to be within the fence of God's word. Because wisdom is pure, it it wants to know the right notes in, in God's song. Without purity, wisdom cannot function. Without without purity, wisdom is is like building without a blueprint. Or it's playing a game but not having any rules. If our hands are dirty, if our hands aren't pure, what happens to everything we touch? If, If you've had s'mores and you've had chocolate and marshmallow in your hands, what happens to everything you touch? It gets chocolate and marshmallow on it, right? If our hands are dirty with sin, then then, then we don't have wisdom. We can't act wisely. But with purity, wisdom can choose well. Now, as James says, wisdom is first pure. It's first first got to be in the confines of God's commands. But after that, James is going to focus on our relationships with one another. And and that's appropriate because that's really where life is hard, right? Life is hard in relationships with one another, and that's where wisdom is going to have to be seen. Wisdom, James says, is first pure, but then it's peaceable. Wisdom values harmonious relationships. Wisdom avoids unnecessary friction. Doesn't enjoy an argument. It's not combative. We can see why purity has to come first. Purity reveals where, where, where compromise is, is impossible, right? We have to stay pure. But after that purity within there, wisdom wants to, in a sense, value peace so much, it will compromise all kinds of things if it can. Wisdom is gentle. Wisdom doesn't insist on its own ways. It doesn't insist on its rights or perceived rights. Wisdom bends when it can. It doesn't dig in and demand my way. You have, to, you, have, you have to play the game I want. I'm thinking about kids. Wisdom is considerate. It yields even its preferences to others. Wisdom is open to reason. It's willing to, to, to be persuaded. It doesn't have to have its way. It's not obstinate. obstinate. Instead, it, it is compliant. Wisdom leads, leans towards submitting to others. How can I serve you? It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's filled with mercy, like like, like a cup filled to the top. Mercy is compassion. It's pity. It's concern towards someone in need. And whether that person needs to be forgiven by you because you've offended them, 
or because they've offended you. You probably offended them too, so you need forgiveness too. But, or it's wisdom to someone with a physical, I mean, it's mercy towards someone with a physical need. Wisdom is not too stuck up to give compassion. Wisdom is filled with good fruits, actions which are useful and beneficial to others. Wisdom wants to help. It is impartial. Wisdom doesn't divide people by, by, by their appearances, by their class, by their economics, by their education. It doesn't look at people and say, well, you can help me. You can't. Right? Like that is not wisdom. That's that earthly, demonic thinking. Wisdom is impartial, and wisdom is sincere. It's genuine. Wisdom is without pretense and hypocrisy before God and before others. You don't, you're, not, you're not worried about pretending to be someone so that you can get a benefit. You don't divide people about whether they can give a benefit to you, and you don't pretend to be something you're, you're not so that you can get a benefit from, from others. These characteristics together... It's a picture of what, of what maturity is. And it's really, it's a compelling picture of wisdom. It's a beautiful picture. Pure and gentle, generous, honest. This is the kind of, 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 of wisdom we want to see cultivated in our, in our kids. This is the disciple of Jesus Christ we want to be. And this is the kind of disciple we all want to be involved in making, Right? These are, the, if we have these characteristics in, in, in our life, even if a world may, may hate us because of our confession that Christ is the only way to be saved or because our telling them the bad news that if they don't repent, they're going to go to hell or that Jesus really is the only way, they're still going to look at our lives and say, well, there's a lot of beauty there. There's something really compelling to that life. There's part of me that even wants to be like that is what a lost world will say. You can see how many similarities there are here to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, this, this wisdom is the work of God's Spirit in the lives of His people. If you have been united with Christ, if you have new life in Christ, this wisdom, Christ your wisdom, is going to overflow out of you into this kind of wisdom. This is the person that Christ is making you to be. It's beautiful. That is good news for you. And I hope if you don't have Jesus Christ yet, that, that, that looks desirable to you. You're, you're looking, hopefully some of the kids here this morning are looking and saying, that's the kind of person I want to be. It's beautiful. I want to be like Jesus Christ. Do you have that kind of wisdom? Are you cultivating that kind of wisdom in your life? And as you look at this, are there areas that you need to put some energy to say, well, you know, I do see myself growing in wisdom and understanding. God is helping me to be good at life, but I do need to put some energy and, and, and focus here. That is part of the beauty of being involved in, 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 in a care group. If you're not involved in a care group yet, we, we would love to talk to you. The elders and pastors are, are happy to help you. Women, there, there are other godly women in the church who will help you. you. We need to help one another cultivate these descriptions of wisdom. We want this to be the character of all of us. We see how beautiful that, that wisdom is, that, that, that presence of wisdom in our lives in verse 17. But we also want to see, and this is what we, we will see if that wisdom is our life, we're going to see the fruit of wisdom. 
And it's in contrast to what we saw that, that fruit of that earthly non-wisdom was, right? Where it was discourse and, and, and every kind of vile behavior. Look at the, the fruit of wisdom in verse 18. It says, and he just, he just focuses on one fruit. And that's probably because it contrasts to the kind of conflicts that were going on in these early Jewish churches. Listen to what he says in James 3.18. And a harvest of righteousness... That means a harvest made up of righteousness, God-pleasing behavior, is sown in peace by those who make peace. He's already talked about wisdom being peaceable. He says a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, the Jewish idea of peace is more than the absence of conflict. Peace has the idea of, of health of wholeness that happens when there is no conflict. There has to be no conflict first before this, this health and wholeness can flourish. It is, it is an idea of prosperity. Now, in marriage, if you're kind of going through, through, through a rough patch, you might be satisfied when the fight's finally over. Like, okay, good, there's peace again. But that's not really the kind of peace that it's talking about here. That's short of this Jewish idea of peace. In marriage, this kind of peace is when the husband and wife are happily working together in God's world, doing God's will with thankfulness, right? Like they're raising, I mean, they're waking up with smiles on their face to say, we're going to go do God's work in God's world today. That's peace. That's flourishing. Now, those who... who, who who make peace here, because he describes those who sow in peace by those who make peace. Those who make peace, who are peacemakers, are doing more than trying to get everyone to calm down, right? It's, it's, it's not like a dad who has, you know, three or four kids and he's trying to get them all down at bedtime at the same time. That, that, that's a kind of making peace. That's not the kind of peacemaking he's talking about here. This is making peace with a, a goal. And the goal is described as more of that beautiful speech here. It's a harvest of righteousness. It, it's, it's the fruit of righteousness. It's God-pleasing behavior. It's beautiful. This God-pleasing behavior, this obedience to commands, it, it flourishes when there's peace. Now, making peace requires reconciliation. It requires reconciliation vertically. First of all, with God, that we are right with God through Christ Jesus, through our faith in him, that we know that we have been welcomed into God's presence and given Christ's perfect righteousness. It also requires reconciliation with one another. And that happens as we come to God together in Christ. But the goal of reconciliation is not its own goal. It's not just peace. It's not just like, hey, well, we all came to church and it was pretty peaceful. Right? It's a harvest of righteousness. In contrast to the earthly, spiritual, demonic foolishness where, where that results in disorder and every vile practice, it's a harvest of righteousness. Now, those who sow in peace don't say, you know, I just want to sow in peace. I just want, I just want my own little garden. I just want a, a harvest of righteousness so I can, do, I can do God's work. Sowing in peace is God's people doing God's work in God's world together, having been brought together into God's field by gospel-proclaiming peacemakers. And that is what we do when we go share the gospel this upcoming week. We want to make peace so that those can come into God's kingdom and be participants in this harvest of righteousness together. 
in, in conformity to God's commands, loving him and loving others. Jesus sent his disciples to make peace so that they could sow in peace a harvest of righteousness. And that's what we want righteousness to flourish. We want it to flourish in our homes as, 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 as we as peacemakers make peace so that it flourishes. We want it to flourish as much as possible a harvest of righteousness in our workplaces. We want a harvest of righteousness in our neighborhoods. We want a harvest of righteousness here at Cornerstone Bible Church and in this church neighborhood, right? That is the beauty of wisdom. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, and that peace comes from the gospel. It's really a compelling picture of what wisdom produces. Now, this harvest of righteousness will be the result of wisdom only. It's not going to be the result of, of anything else. It'll only be the result of wisdom, but not if there's disorder in every vile practice. Sometimes when there's a lot of conflict in church, there's not a lot of harvest of righteousness. What a beautiful goal for CBC going forward. And praise the Lord, there hasn't been conflict recently. This harvest of righteousness. What is God going to make us into as a church I mean, how much righteousness can flourish in our lives as we work together in God's world? We need wisdom if that's going to happen. Where is this wisdom going to come from? From above. We see the source of wisdom in the beginning of verse 17. We've already seen it. That wisdom is from above. Every good, James 1.17 talks about from above. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Wisdom comes from God who gives good gifts, and he is willing to give the good gift of wisdom to you. So wisdom isn't according to this world. It needs to come from outside the world. Wisdom has to enter into the cave of our hearts with the bright shining light of Jesus Christ and exposes the jealousy and selfish ambition and makes you scurry, really even puts it to death. This wisdom is revealed by God. It's revealed in his written word, the Bible, and it's revealed in his living word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This wisdom is found only in Jesus Christ. And if you are looking at your life and you see a lot of foolishness and not a lot of wisdom, this wisdom is found in Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Jesus became to us wisdom from God and that wisdom transforms us with righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The wisdom is given by Christ to his people through the empowerment of his spirit. God living in you through his spirit is your source of wisdom if you are in Christ Jesus. You can have this pure wisdom, this peaceable wisdom, this gentle wisdom, this open to reason wisdom, this merciful and good fruit wisdom, this impartial and sincere wisdom. This wisdom is, is the nature of those who have been birthed by God. It needs to be cultivated, but it is, it is your new nature in Christ Jesus. So God is willing to give wisdom to those of you who are willing to ask of him. So let me ask of you, do you have this wisdom? Have you been enjoying this wisdom in your life? As you look at this, as you see what wisdom displays itself as, can you now answer the question, am I wise in understanding and say yes? By God's grace, some of you can, right? It's, like, it's not wrong to say, do you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Oh, no, I don't have any. No, that, that means you're not saved, right? You can look at your life and say, yeah, by God's grace, 
I, I need more wisdom. I want to grow in wisdom and understanding, but I see this wisdom and understanding in my life. My new nature is, is, is beginning to flourish. I'm participating in that harvest of righteousness. But maybe you can look at your life and say, you know, I, I, I don't see that wisdom and understanding. I'm not, I'm not good at life. I'm not skilled at life. I haven't really been concerned at all what God considers pure and right. I haven't been peaceable. I don't bend to anyone. I haven't been open to reason. I'm always demanding my own way. I haven't been merciful. I just care about me and mine. I haven't had good fruits. I'm always putting on a facade. If that describes you, you can go to Jesus Christ to become different, to have righteousness and sanctification and redemption and wisdom. Wisdom is the new nature of those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you have that wisdom and understanding? You're not going to get that wisdom through the earthly, natural, demonic way that the world describes wisdom. It won't come from selfish ambition. It won't come from that bitter jealousy, but in God's way. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and, and, and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wisdom can be yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you being the creator, um, you give good gifts. And really, Lord, we can look at this world and a lot of what we can even listen to in the social media or the radio can have a lot of kind of wisdom to it. It can even match up with, with some of what you value. Um, but Lord, that's because of your grace uh, to people who are deep down foolish. Lord, and uh, we confess, those of you, those of us who know you through your son, that apart from Christ, we are foolish. We do things consistently the wrong way. And apart from Christ, we are not good at life. Father, I thank you that you have made wisdom known. And wisdom is most beautifully seen in your son. And your son perfectly displayed wisdom. He was as wise and understanding as any human ever could be. He did not deserve to take the punishment for our foolishness and selfish ambition, our jealousy, our vain conceit. Thank you so much for sending Jesus Christ to take the punishment for our sin and for resurrecting him so that we can share in his newness of life, Lord, that we can become part of the new, beautiful humanity that becomes like Jesus Christ, that becomes wise and understanding. Thank you, Father, for being so gracious and help us to become like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.